you bubbly bush babies out there. Welcome to another episode of A Little Greener, a podcast about conservation, nature, and sustainability. My name's Casey. I'm one of your hosts. And I'm Sarah, your co-host. Welcome back to another episode, episode 12 of A Little Greener. We're excited to have you. Sarah, I know it's the question. You should be prepared. How was your week? <laughs> it was good. It was okay. It was fine. Uh, <laughs> I actually had one of those weeks where I just sort of, everything was fine, but little things were driving me crazy. Like this morning I woke up and my milk, which has a sell-by date of like five days from now, was already spoiled. Why does that happen? <laughs> um, you know, so stuff like that happened. Uh, it's been very hot here. So hot. So awful. Which, I mean, I enjoy it. I like being warm, but it does tend to wear you out more at the end of the day. But it's fine. I can't I can't complain too much. I feel like I had some good news to share, though, and now I've lost it. So you have good news, though. Didn't you get some good news this week about your, your digits? Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> I uh, don't have to get surgery Yay! on my fingers. That's very exciting. I just have a bunch of like little fractures in it, but they have switched me. I know it's, it's not great. It's not a great diagnosis, but it is a less expensive diagnosis. And I have been switched into a much more comfortable brace. Still, this is a crooked finger. They haven't really told me that like, Hey, it won't be crooked forever. So we're working on that portion of it, but it is a less expensive option. And I did want to give a shout out this morning, Andrew and I donated blood. Yes. Um, yes. So, uh, we have a friend who is a doctor at a children's hospital. Hello, Amanda. Um, Yay. and she texted me last night and was like, Hey, there is a nationwide shortage of blood donations. And, um, she works at a children's hospital. So like, it's kind of an, especially like she wants to be able to give her patients the best care possible, like all doctors, but not being able to do what she would want to best do for the patients because of a shortage of blood supply. She was asking if we would help out. So Andrew and I went to donate blood and ran into her at the blood donation That's station. Awesome. So, uh, if you get a chance and you, you are able to donate blood, it is a really good time to do that there. It's a nationwide shortage right now. So the more we can help out people in need, the better we love nature, but we also want to help protect people yes. who need it too. So Absolutely. go ahead and try and find a local station to donate blood if you can. Yeah. Thanks for doing that. Uh, I am not able, so, uh, I'm, I'm. I did Glad kind of that... pass out, but oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> that's not good. I didn't go completely black, but it got a, everything was real fuzzy. It felt like I was underwater. So they yeah. were like, ah, and they like gave me a Sprite <laughs> and all of that, but they took really good care of me and I got yeah. a free t-shirt. So yay, uh, highly and recommend you're fine. Yeah. and I'm fine. Yeah. I'm fine. Yeah. Yes. So. so thank you very much for doing that. You're welcome. Humanity. Okay. I guess yay. So join us if you do it. <laughs> Yeah. Tag us, let us know. But also like in podcast news, we reached 500 downloads. Yeah. So that's very exciting, uh, positive news for us. So thanks all of you for listening. We really do appreciate that. And we look forward to the next 500 too. So if you're listening and enjoying, please spread the word, pass us along to your friends, give us a share on social media and we'll keep going from here. Yeah. All right, Sarah, last week we talked about wildlife and roadways and your action was to look up how you're supposed to report uh, roadkill that you find to help prevent further roadkill from predator species. So 
Uh, how'd you do on this? Well, here's the thing, Casey, we live in the same place and you told me how to we do, do it last week. <laughs> so you did my homework for me uh, last week, um, but I was keeping an eye out. I, our, our sort of, our beast mode challenge, I think was to, to help wildlife cross the road if you so happened to see it. And I, it did not happen, but I was keeping an eye out. I, uh, got a little bit afraid that I was going to hit a bird on the way to work today. And I was like, I mean, I never want to hit a bird, obviously, but I was like, I can't, can't do this this week. week. (laughs) (laughs) But it was one of those things where it was just the the way that the light was in the morning and there was just a small bird. And I thought that it was just a spot on the road. And then I got closer and I was like, nope, that's a bird, (laughs) but it's fine. Those birds play like not to have yeah. a pun, but they play chicken with cars. They They're do. like, I'm going to sit on this road as long as possible before I get actually run over. So at least but it wasn't I, a bald eagle. That's true. <laughs> not a bald eagle. Um, so uh, yeah, that's how I did uh, on the homework. But we kind of said last week, we hope, we hope really that we don't have too much opportunity to complete that on this challenge. So right. um, and I guess by virtue of that, you did the same sort of because you already knew the answer to our first challenge yes for the city we live in yeah yeah, it's the it's the mayor action line that we call to help remove any roadkill and Andrew when I was talking about like hey I talked about the bald eagle story he was like yeah that bald eagle like swooped down and grabbed that roadkill so it was even more than like I remember of it like Mm. stalling and coming up no it actually landed picked up roadkill and left so this could actually make a big difference for local wildlife. Yeah. But I'm assuming you didn't see any any wildlife crossing either. No, unfortunately, just the aftermath in the oh, city no. this week. Yeah. RIP local squirrels. Sad. Yes, but but now you are equipped with more knowledge. If you're not equipped, go back and listen to the last episode on how to help out. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Casey. And you, our our question for this week is just kind of a fun one, I hope, and one that we've maybe kind of touched on in previous episodes, but I'm curious, I kind of know half of this for you, but what's your, what are your favorite and least favorite animals? You know, if you, as someone who works with animals, if you ask me like, oh, do you like this? Like, I'm most likely going to answer, oh, I love those. <laughs> um, and we have a friend who would always answer this question of whatever animals in front of me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I try not to be so like evasive about it because I genuinely do have particular animals I find m- more interesting to talk about. And I've mentioned this before, but I've spent a lot of time with orangutans and they have stolen my heart. Uh, so I'm going to go, I-, I like to answer them as my favorite animal because it can also open up lots of fun conversations for people but honestly like elephants are cool cheetahs are cool like lots of things obviously I'm turning out to be a slightly mammal centric person I do love some good radiated tortoises as well Mm -hmm. uh least favorite animals you know crocodiles are those animals that like put a pit in my stomach like I feel kind of nauseous when I'm seeing too much of them especially in action but really I think my least favorite animal um bit me this week and it was a mosquito (laughs) so I think mosquitoes just like I love summer nights out outside and they are the bane of my existence in the summer. I don't have too bad of reactions, but I did get this thing called the bug bite thing for my birthday this year (laughs) to see if it'll help reduce some of the swelling. Oh, so like it's something you put on after you get bit. It is like this little 
suction tube thing that you like, you get bit. I have guys, this could be totally like pseudoscience snake oil, but I'm going to take this <laughs> placebo effect. Andrew's like, this doesn't, isn't going to work. And I was like, I'm not, it's 10 bucks, please. Yeah. Like I want it for my birthday. And so I got it for my birthday. And so basically like, if you get bit, you put it on there and kind of like suction it up and it's supposed to just kind of keep the, the irritant, they're like okay. little saliva, they leave more localized. So it doesn't spread as much. Like, I don't know if it works. Apparently it helps remove splinters too. So I'm going to take it. There you go. Um, but I, I do not like mosquitoes very much. Thanks bats for helping me out with my That's mosquitoes. Right. How about you, Sarah? What is your favorite and least favorite? So mine, my favorite animal I've always said, and I just feel like it's so cliche, but I am a cat person. So <laughs> I like all of the cats. It's, it's, I'm just more of a sort of emotional, nostalgic person about these sort of things. And the first animal that I really remember feeling connected to as a little kid when we would go to zoos uh, were tigers and so tigers have always been my top favorite there's no I don't have like a fascinating knowledge bank of tiger information that makes me appreciate them more than any other animal or anything like that it is just a sort of visceral emotional um appreciation that I have for them that I just I remember being mesmerized by them so but that sort of goes around to all felids now. Um, so I love all of the cats, uh, wild or domesticated, but the tiger kind of always holds the, the top spot for me. And then everybody knows my least favorite animal. Um, the, the one that gets the pit in my stomach, just thinking about it is the cockroach. I mean, phobia, like it's a full on right. phobia, um, no rational reason for it whatsoever, but I just, I don't, I don't do well if there's a roach in the room. And it's to the point where like, if I see a bug or something on the ground that looks like it might be a cockroach, I will like not be able to approach it until I have somebody go over and say, tell me like, is that a cockroach? Yes or no. If the answer is no, then I'm like, okay, like, and I can go right up to it and look at it. But until my brain knows that it's not a cockroach, I can't, like, I can't even approach. So, and I think it's fair to say that both of us, like, intellectually, like, even though we have it, maybe preferences across the animal spectrum, like, we understand the importance and, like, how yes. cool even our least favorite animals are. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, everybody's got their own preferences, and that does play into what we're interested in and what we're willing to support too. Yeah. And we'll talk about that hopefully a little bit more in our main discussion today. So stick around for that. Uh, but for right now, stick around for a review from Casey when we come back. All right. Welcome back to the review section of this episode. Uh, I don't know if I'd call this necessarily a review. This is a cool thing that I came across that I just wanted to share with everyone. But uh, as Sarah pointed out, basically we're in charge here. <laughs> we're going to call it a review for the purposes of our podcast organization. Today. That's right. To keep that consistency and structure. So you know what to expect. <laughs> um, today we're going to talk about an initiative called bird names for birds, um, which I think is 
fantastic. And that's why I wanted to share it with you. That's basically the review portion of this, this review. (laughs) Um, I think it's great, but basically in the U S we are having a conversation Uh, that we're discussing basically reckoning with some of our history of honoring historical figures that participated in things in the past that today are considered pretty horrendous. And we're talking specifically about the either direct killing or subjugation of non-white people, including indigenous people, black people, um, people in Mexico for some of these folks that we're talking about today. Um, But basically, we have birds here in the U.S. and I'm sure abroad that are named after historical figures. Some of these people are people who actually like first described this animal for the European scientific community, basically. Um, but some of them are just like, I don't know, that this guy funded the trip to find birds and someone named them after them. So uh, basically they're talking about eponymous names, which means that they are have human names in their common name. So some of those uh, animals are uh, animals like Bachman Sparrow, um, McCall's, McCallan's Longspur, which actually just recently got changed. Um, and, and so I want to talk a little bit about that movement a little bit. Um, so the first thing is first is that uh, we're talking about taxonomy kind of today. Um, taxonomy is the way that we sort animals. So who's related to who, who's, what are we calling these animals? Um, this movement is actually not trying to change the scientific names. The way they kind of described it is, um, the scientific names are almost like your social security number that helps scientists sort them by genus and species. And while they said they're open to changing some of those, they understand that that's a pretty complicated thing to do. Um, but we're talking about the common names, which they compared to more like the name someone calls you. And then if you get married, you get your last name changed and everybody's kind of okay with that happening. Um, and that's more of what they're addressing today. So it's first things first, important to say that taxonomy is made up. Um, while it is oftentimes based on scientific principles, we have, as humans have sorted things into boxes, right? And what we call birds is also made up. It is something assigned to them. So uh, a lot of the common names that we use today were assigned in the colonial period. So prior to European colonists coming over to the Americas, uh, indigenous people had their own names for lots of these species. They already had something they were calling them. And the things that we call them today were later assigned by people coming over who were not from the region. And one of the things I actually kind of like about this movement is one of the, the challenges that I think people have with renaming things, and, and here we're talking about it in statues and we're talking about it uh, with highways and schools, oftentimes named after like people in the Confederacy, for example, people will say, well, you're judging them by modern standards. Is it really fair to be able to judge someone in the past by standards that we've set forward today? Um, and I think that kind of misses a certain point, which is that um, kind of two things. One, in a lot of cases, those actions that these people did and and some of the people these animals were named after, like helped in the persecution and, and genocide of indigenous people. Some of them owned slaves or fought to keep enslaved people um, in the United States. Uh, some of them were part of a movement of science where basically they did skull measurements to figure out 
to try and prove racist assumptions within science that the shape of your skull actually proved that basically humans were different enough and that white people were better. And some of these people literally like dug up graves of indigenous people and people during the Mexican war and, and shipped them off and stole their bodies. So some really horrific things some of these people did. Um, but the thing that bird bird names for birds is trying to do is just say, let's just not have them named after people at all. Um, because those birds don't really have anything to do. Like a bird sitting in a tree today does not really have anything to do with the person who decided to describe it to science or the person that that person decided to honor them after. Um, and what this does is it, it allows for nature to be a more welcoming place. Something we've talked about in the past is that, uh, as white people, we have a lot of privilege in that we feel safe and have had access to natural spaces for basically our whole lives. Um, and obviously that varies person to person, but there is a unique barrier that people of color have to natural spaces and oftentimes natural activities as well. And so when you're trying to get people interested in nature and you're birding in this case, and they are identifying species that were named after people who did not see them as human beings um, or participated in horrific crimes against their ancestors, like that, that's a barrier. That is something that we have to acknowledge is, is harmful to people and is a reason for them maybe to be less invested because the community, by keeping those names, shows that it doesn't really care about how that impacts Black birders and Indigenous peoples. And this movement says, let's just get, let's not judge each individual person. The birds don't really have anything to do with these people these days. Let's just take care of all of the eponymous names and replace them with something different, um, which I really like. I think it sounds like a, a kind of nice, simple solution to start moving things in a place where we can have nature a little bit more equi equitably uh, accessible to people and just take down one tiny barrier of which many, many exist. Right. Um, this is just one little thing that we could do as the nature community to make things a little bit more accessible. There are still issues of people not feeling safe in nature, natural spaces, uh, the historical implications of walking alone in the woods, who feels safe in that situation versus who doesn't, who, who is in danger in those situations. Um, this is just one little thing. And instead of focusing on like who these birds honor, again, some of these like people that they are named after never even saw the species that they mm -hmm. have the name of. Um, Anna's hummingbird, for example, was named after a royal that helped fund, I think, the program that sent the naturalists there. She never saw them. <laughs> like, she never saw an Anna's hummingbird. Um, and other people are just like, let's not basically in in name give them statues. This is the, this is about making a modern world that is more accessible to more people. Bird names for birds is not actually proposing alternative names themselves. Um, some other options include things like using a bird's appearance. So McCown's uh, longspur was a bird that was named after a guy who accidentally shot it, I think, or caught it. And then he ended up giving it to a naturalist named George Lawrence. And George Lawrence decided to name it after him because he provided him with the sample. Um, but McCown ended up fighting in the Confederacy and, and doing some other terrible kept enslaved people. And so that one is actually one that recently was changed 
Um, and I believe that they have renamed it to, oh gosh, I'm going to get it, get it wrong, but I think it is the thick build long spur now. So basically instead of using the people, just using something that's more descriptive, that would actually help you identify a better burger. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. Being able to use colors of that bird, um, just like adjectives, maybe using its range instead of the person's name, you know, that, okay, it's the Pacific, whatever, you know, or the Rocky mountain, whatever this could help people be better birders, as you said. And then they also said like, we could use indigenous names, but that needs to be with the full consent and participation of indigenous peoples. Um, some of the species, like we, we could say, well, that seems like the easiest, most almost like restorative way to do it. But some of these species had different names in different, uh, tribes that are across the U S. So there are different names that you could choose from. And some of those names are lost because a lot of those tribes do not exist. A lot of their languages have been lost that we don't know what those original names were for those, those animals in their languages. And so, uh, if we want to go that route, we just want to make sure that the people, uh, who are, are most impacted are the ones having those full consent and cooperation within that naming process. Um, so they have actually, they have a great website. It's birdnamesforbirds.wordpress.com. I recommend you go check it out. There's some really cool historical information in there. I learned a whole lot about some of the people that we have named birds after. And there's actually like a nice little art project in there where for Inktober, one of the artists drew pictures of the bird and then put it next to the picture of the person they're named after doing some pretty horrible things. And it just was like a very jarring, but very interesting way of framing it. So I recommend going on. And they also talk about um, some issues with kind of the naming process as, as is. And if you want to make birding a more equitable place, this might be a good place to start of sharing this initiative and seeing how we can put pressure on the birding community to make things a little bit more accessible for people. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for sharing, Casey. I've, I've heard a little bit about this as well, although I, I don't believe I've been to the website, so I'll have to check that out too. And I, I mean, obviously this is a, a, a bigger discussion um, for sure, but I am glad that the discussion is happening. And when I first heard about it, you know, there were things like, I just didn't realize, like, I didn't realize the things that people were connected to and that is probably not great. Like I probably should have, you know, it's just not something I had ever been made aware of or a thought that had ever crossed my mind, um, but it is going to be very much so for for other people who, you know, are, are involved in bird watching or want to get invested in nature. So as you said, uh, I think that, you know, that's if this is something that would help people feel more comfortable and make this be a more accessible thing for people this is a really important discussion to be having. So thanks for bringing it to everyone's attention. If you guys hang around, we are going to have a discussion on insects in the main body of our episode. Welcome back, everybody. So today's episode is going to be all about insects. Now, I will say right off the bat that as happens quite a bit when I'm preparing for a podcast episode, this the final 
result or what I think the final result is going to be today anyway, wasn't initially where I started when I wanted to, to talk about insect conservation. I more wanted to kind of dive into the nitty gritty of how insect conservation projects work and kind of the more details of how we count insects and that sort of thing. That isn't where I ended up today. So maybe we'll talk more about that for future episodes. Today is gonna be more of a general overview, sort of a, a, a broader overview of insects, insect conservation, what we know about the population of insects, a little bit about sort of how we know it. And then of course we wanna talk about why we should care too. So first things first, we're gonna get on the same page of what we're talking about when we're talking about insects. So Casey, how would you describe an insect? What are some things that you know of that are kind of common traits for insects? <laughs> so we had a song we used to sing. Oh boy. When I worked at the Philadelphia Zoo. <laughs> head thorax abdomen abdomen <laughs> head thorax abdomen i sing too much on this podcast but I was say. <laughs> these are um invertebrates so they don't have a backbone mm -hmm. they have three parts of their body the head thorax and abdomen that's how you hence know that the they're song. instinct insects yes hence the song um they don't have any bones at all they have an exoskeleton so it's on the outside um and six legs, right? We're not talking about yep. spiders. We're not Correct. talking about yep. uh, centipedes, think, millipedes, yeah, right, scorpions. I don't think ticks are actually bugs. I think, but uh, yeah. So that is my insect definition. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And is that those are some big things like that. That was part of what you just said was some of the distinction that I want to make. So sometimes the things like spiders, centipedes, millipedes get lumped Lump, in yeah. as either called insects or called bugs sometimes, which I'll get to in a minute here. So yeah, we're talking about those three body segments. So if you look at a spider, they only have two body segments. And then of course they have eight legs. So three body segments, six jointed legs are going to be the things that you're looking for, for an, an insect. Most insects, not all, but most have wings and they'll have either one or two pairs of wings. Um, insects will also tend to go through a metamorphosis. Butterflies, obviously the classic example of this, there's four stages in their life cycle. So the egg, the larva, which in the case of butterflies and moths is the caterpillar, the pupa and the adult. So insects are either gonna go through a complete metamorphosis like that with four stages or an incomplete metamorphosis, which has three stages. They are not the only animals our amphibians also go through metamorphosis, but um, that's another thing that is common to insects. So Casey mentioned a couple of other words that we want to talk about real fast. So invertebrates not having a backbone. So that's kind of an overall, there are lots of other types of invertebrates as well. Um, and then another word that we kind of need to bring up when we're talking about insects are the arthropods. So this is getting a little bit into that taxonomy, that man-made classification system that Casey was talking about. It's important, but it's annoying. <laughs> right, exactly. I actually can't stand taxonomy because I can't ever keep it straight and things change and all of that. But, uh, but it is, I feel like when you are 
talking about a group of animals, it is just an easy way for us as humans to provide a little structure and a little context for what we're talking about. I have a love-hate relationship with taxonomy. I understand. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, arthropods are all invertebrates. They have a segmented body, like insects, they have those paired segmented legs, but it's going to include a lot of other things. So those spiders, centipedes, millipedes, crabs, things like that, they're arthropods, but not insects. So we think about those, those three body segments and the six legs uh, for our insects. And then within the insect class, there are a lot of different groups uh, or orders of insects. So you talk about crickets and grasshoppers make up a group. You've got mantids that are another group. You have bees, wasps, ants that are another group. Everybody's favorite, the cockroaches that are another group, beetles. So all of those different kind of orders within the overall insect group. Um, and I mentioned then the word bug earlier. So you will hear me, full disclosure, I will use insects and bug interchangeably. Technically speaking, scientifically, there uh, is, they're not 100% interchangeable. There is a group within the insect class of true bugs is what they're called. And they're distinguished largely by they have, uh, they have those insect traits and then they kind of have like a needle-like piercing, sucking type mouthpiece with the true bugs. But that's one of those things where I'm like, okay, like that's good to know, but also I'm just going to use insect and bug interchangeably. So you will hear me do that. Just know I do understand that there are true bugs. So we're all on the same page with insects. Again, lots of different types, lots of diversity within our insect group. There are more species of insect than any other species of animal. And this is a thing that again, when you when it comes to insect conservation, I think plays a role. So I wanted to talk just a little bit about insect populations. So again, it depends a little bit on who you ask, but right now there are about 1 million identified species of insect out of about 1.6 total million identified animal species what i mean i guess i'm not surprised but right like okay but All yeah right. when you really put it like put it on paper and really think about it that's pretty impressive and that like include like that's insects that's not even including some mm-hmm. of the other inverts okay exactly so now and again we have not discovered or named or identified all species on earth. So estimates for the total number of insect species on earth that you can find range anywhere from about 2 million all the way up to 30 million species of insect. And so that's changed over time a little bit. I believe the best I could uh, determine is that 30 million number came from a study that was done in the 1980s uh, by a, a gentleman by the name of Terry Irwin. Are you familiar with this, Casey? No. Okay. You, I, I just glanced over and I thought I saw you no, nodding. No, I was just like, okay, 30 million, 30 million. is a lot. That's okay, a continue. Lot. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. The, the way that he did this apparently was to basically fog a tree. I can't remember. I believe this was 
in the tropics somewhere. I can't remember where he was. I apologize. But he fogged a tree and caught all of the fallout. These insects falling out of the tree, like, caught them in a sheet, like like fumigated. Pesticide. Yeah. Oh, okay. 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 I yeah, just yeah. wanted to double check. I was like, did all of them just hate like fog? No. No, like, no, no. Okay. No. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So then they they all kind of fall into the sheet, and he counted them and counted the number of species like that were found only on that type of tree or whatever, and then used that to sort of extrapolate, and came up with this thirty million number. That in studies that have happened since then that have different methodology and things like that we think that that is way high <laughs> but you will still see that 30 million number listed so there was a study back in 2011 and i didn't have full access to a lot of these studies so i don't have a lot of context in terms of how exactly they, they were arriving at these numbers um, but a more uh what seems to be a pretty well accepted study back in 2011 estimated that there are about 8.7 million total animal species on earth and then a study published in 2018 estimated about 5.5 million species of insects so now we're thinking that there's somewhere of about 5.5 million species of insects out of 8.7 total 8.7 million total animal species so we only know about 1.6 million species right. of animal on planet earth. Mm -hmm. And there's like four and a half times that amount, five times that amount of animals on earth. Okay. Yeah. That's amazing in and of itself. We have so much more to learn, so much more to learn, but no matter how you slice it up, first of all, insects are making up a huge huge portion of life on earth which is pretty incredible and also we still have according to these estimates about 80 percent of insect species left to discover which kind of makes me want to go into research and discover a bug but so that's a a pretty just kind of a basic overview of where we are and just i i pulled a quote from that 2018 study so they said, in the last decade, new methods of estimating global species richness have been developed and existing ones improved through the use of more appropriate statistical tools and new data. So again, I don't have, I'm not a researcher. I don't have a whole lot of insight into that, um, but that's what they're, they're saying about these new estimates. Um, taking the mean of most of these new estimates indicates that globally there are approximately 1.5 million 5.5 million and 7 million species of beetles, insects, and terrestrial arthropods, respectively. So again, that 5.5 million number um, is the species of insect. Are beetles insects? Beetles are insects. Yes. Okay, beetles. Okay. Yes. Yep. So they're look, they were looking at specifically beetles right. within the insect group and then insects as a part of that total terrestrial arthropod thing. But yes, beetles are a very diverse group of insect. Wow. Okay. So that's kind of a uh, species numbers. And then I also found, uh, I think this was from the Smithsonian Institute, this next number that I just had to share based on our discussion on wildlife and roads, which if you haven't listened to that, we had, I can't remember what the numbers were, Casey, I meant to go back and listen, but you were talking about the number of bees. It's like 24. Billion, billion or, something or something like that yeah, yeah 24 billion bees that were hit by a car in a year is that right 
Uh, yeah. I can't. I can't remember for sure. And we were like, yeah. "How are there even bees?" And you know the, that that Andrew had made that comment. Well, I can tell you now. <laughs> it's because uh, it is estimated. And again, I don't have the full details on where, how they arrive at these estimates. That at any given time, there are ten quintillion insects alive on Earth. And I was like, I don't even know what ten quintillion is that's 19 zeros 19 zeros i just counted (laughs) (laughs) one followed by 19 zeros okay that's how that's how that many be i mean still not good but okay oh yeah wow we'll talk about that but i just never seen that number before again i believe that came from the smithsonian institute i'll try to make sure that that's one of my sources that i list but uh that blew my mind. And I, I think that, I mean, that was part of what interested me in talking about insect conservation. So a couple of things to, to note from all of those numbers and why I wanted to share them is clearly we don't have a lot of whole, a whole lot of info on insects when we compare it to other types of species, right? There's still so much left unknown when it comes to insects. And then I think just the sheer numbers are hard for us to comprehend. I know for me, I can't, I cannot wrap my brain around a number like 10 quintillion. And so I think it can be hard looking at seeing numbers like that. And even just, you know, in our day to day, how often we might see insects, it's hard for us to comprehend. And so it's hard for us to imagine it mattering. I think that the insect population could decline enough to matter. But the problem is is that this is a really dangerous mindset, right? Insects are tiny. They do get, they don't have long lifespans. There needs to be a lot of them for populations to continue. They're very important. We don't want to be blind to a problem until it's too late to solve it. We don't want to wait for things to be catastrophic before we do something about it. So I share those numbers because I think it's interesting, but I don't share them to say that everything's okay, right? This episode is entitled Insect Apocalypse question mark and I don't want to I don't want to give anybody the idea that we're okay when it comes to in- insects. I just want to kind of put things into perspective a little bit. So that's kind of where we're at with numbers and Casey I was I kind of was just alluding to this or leading into it but when you think about studying insects and insect conservation and that sort of thing what do you imagine or what do you know of that might be some of the challenges that we might face when studying insect populations as compared to other groups of animals well like even just like comparing it to how we track megafauna so like think about how we like track elephants we might go into helicopters and literally count the elephants we see or we go through a habitat and we look at the droppings and we try and estimate based on like the area how many animals this area can support like there's just so many bugs and they're so small that I imagine that it's just difficult to count yeah not to not just to mention that like you just said that we haven't discovered 80% of the insects. <laughs> right. So like maybe even some of the things that we're counting, maybe some of those populations are actually separate species. Like a lot of these animals 
that are probably the most vulnerable are ones that are living in habitat that tends to be more remote. So Mm -hmm. the rainforest, like imagine counting bugs in the rainforest. I'm sure people do it, but it sounds very difficult. Right. So I'm sure that's like all things that contribute to that. For sure. Yeah. So we have a lack of baseline information as, as compared to other species with, I mean, like you were saying, so many species still not even identified. One of the things that I was coming across and reading about different studies and challenges and things like that is that with identifying some of these species, it's not even possible because they are just hard to identify and the labor resources and the time resources, getting a true accurate species ID sometimes can be labor time and cost prohibitive from people that are wanting to study these things. And so, uh, you know, those are all things to think about. And sometimes you'll see you know, the, again, this is what I, what I wanted to get more into and and didn't really for, for today's episode, but you'll see different types of studies where sometimes they are focused on a single species. Sometimes they'll cover a group of animals. Sometimes they are physically identifying insects and counting individuals that way. Sometimes you'll, they'll talk about insect biomass. So in these studies, they're not even identifying individual insects they're more looking at the biomass and how has the total like weight (laughs) of these insects basically changed over time um so that's definitely a challenge and then with insects too a lot of times insects have and mentioned this earlier a shorter lifespan and they can have lots of uh i i learned this term stochastic i think is how you say it stochastic Mm -hmm. variation which is like sort of just random variation kind of, but these short-term variations, because they can be sensitive just to things like changes in the weather, right? Like we talked about mosquitoes and, you know, we're more likely to see more mosquitoes maybe after it's been rainy and wet and they've had more breeding ground and then that population's going to explode. Um, So with things like that, that shorter lifespan, those more short-term variations, it can be hard, harder than for other species to get accurate population trend numbers, which can then be an issue too, when you're talking about things like getting a a species listed as an endangered species, because population trends over time is one of those things that you're looking at. But with an insect, it'll say you're looking at a you know, a 10 year period or whatever, if you've got the data from that, uh, that length of time, where you start that 10 years can have a big difference on what the the trends are showing if that makes sense so there are lots of of potential issues there well even think about like the 17 year cicadas Mm -hmm. that are out right now have you seen any of them not one i haven't seen them i haven't heard them nary a single (laughs) cicada where we're at i've seen people we know posting things with them i have not seen a single one but anyway my mom posted a video we we had just talked about it that neither of us had seen one she lives a little bit north of us and like the day after we talked about it she actually heard some while she was out driving and stopped and took a little video but i have not i've still not well, I'm sure there's scientists right now trying to gather their population right. numbers and the next time they can count them is like 17 years from now right. and you'd have two data points. Right. <laughs> so I'm sure that's a challenge for those people too. Yeah. So, so lots of challenges 
And one of the, the reasons that I wanted to talk about all of this is, is because I wanted to just understand a little more how this works. When I started reading about insect conservation, when I started preparing for this podcast, one of the first articles that popped up was a, an article from the, the Guardian, and it was titled, Plummeting Insect Numbers Threaten Collapse of Nature. <laughs> That's like, ominous. That, it's, right? it's terrifying. <laughs> that was the start of, of, that was the headline of the article. You'll hear, I mean, there, there were articles titled like the insect apocalypse is upon us or insect Armageddon or whatever. And so I was like, oh my gosh, like, look at all this stuff. And I really wanted to learn more about how kind of we arrived at those numbers. And what I found from starting to, to read those articles was that a lot of this seemed to come from a, a few different studies. So there were a couple of studies showing really drastic declines in local insect populations. There was a study from that was done in Germany and one from Puerto Rico that were showing that, that truly showed really drastic declines um, in some insect populations locally. And then there was one review that I believe looked at 78 different studies uh, in an attempt to kind of start putting this all of this data together um, and, and showing globally kind of what the impact was. And that's where a lot of these articles came from. Now, as they started reading more about it, I did start to see some other articles, some other studies, other entomologists, people who study insects, coming out and saying, I feel like there were some flaws here uh, with this study. And some of these articles are overstating what we actually know right now. So more recently, there was another kind of meta-analysis, meta a look at a whole bunch of different studies that was showing an estimated 1.1% decline in terrestrial insects per year, which again, maybe that doesn't sound like a lot to you, 1.1%, but sounds pretty significant to me actually. And you can then extrapolate that per year and you're looking at more than 10% in a decade, right? And um, so those are significant numbers, um, but it did also show a 1.16% increase in freshwater insect populations. So not great numbers overall, still again, 1.16% increase, great, fantastic. But that 1.1% decline in terrestrial insects is, is not nothing, right? That's a significant thing. Maybe not quite the insect apocalypse that some of those other studies were showing. So again, what I want to be clear about here is while maybe ultimately some articles you might read are what's the word that I'm looking for, are kind of hyping up this, uh, this insect apocalypse. And some entomologists are saying, well, wait, hold on here. Nobody's saying we don't have a problem and nobody's saying that we don't have things to work on. There's still an agreement that this data is pointing in the same direction, that insects need our help, that insects are facing multifaceted threats. And ultimately we need a whole lot more study to really be able to grasp overall what's going on and making sure that we are targeting 
things the way that we need to target them. Well, and I'm sure that this like 1.1% decline in terrestrial insects is not spread evenly over different species. Like there are particular species that are in particular habitats who are experiencing greater losses while others may be increasing in some areas. Mm -hmm. Um, But those that are decreasing oftentimes are going to then impact species higher up on the food chain. Absolutely. So that's, I think like, I don't know, I I get frustrated with those sort of articles. Like the one I read was like insects, death by a thousand cuts, you know, like it's like a lot of, a lot of like dramatic things and what that can do for people who are already invested is inspire action. But for some people who are not invested, that can like very much turn them off and be like lost cause everything's dying. Um, We see that all the time with coral reefs. Mm -hmm. Um, So but I, yeah, it's interesting. I, I'm excited to see more where we're going with this. Let's see yeah. if we're, yeah. Yeah, no, what you brought, you, those were great points, 100%. And I, you know, I think that even the, one of the authors of the one review that looked at the 78 different studies, they were like, yeah, we, I mean, we want to kind of use this drastic language because we need to wake people up. And on the one hand, I fully respect that. Like, I understand that for sure. But of course, we've talked about things like ecophobia and that kind of disconnect. And Casey, as you just said, that sort of, uh, it's it's too late, lost cause. And there also can be the challenge of if we overstate what's happening, people aren't going to take it seriously either. Like if we're saying, oh, there's this drastic decline. And then, you know, two years later, we do a different study that's like, oh, just kidding. Like, actually, this is what's happening people might have a tendency to take that seriously. Now we'll say like, that's honestly what science does. We, we do studies, we research, we learn, we, you know, look at all of the data, we put out this information and then it might happen that we learn more and then we can and should (laughs) change, you know, the things that we're saying. So there is that too. um, But I think that's why some of, some of the other community, and again, this is me not being a researcher. This is me not being somebody who is in the world of insects trying to kind of piece together the different things that I was looking at and and reading. And so there was just some concern with some entomologists thinking, okay, we we just need to, to bring it back to ground this a little bit more, but still insects need our help. So I feel like you mentioned something else, Casey, that I wanted to expound upon, but it slipped my mind now. So we'll see if we come back to it as, as we keep discussing. So, um, Sarah, have you ever participated in an insect study before? Um, only sort of very loosely, which I will get to okay. at the end when we talk about our actions, just sort of as a community science program, nothing super official. Have you? Yes. Yeah. What did you do? Yeah. I helped out at our job. We had a visiting scientist come mm. in and work with some teens program yeah. and we went out at night Yeah, and we talked a little bit about metamorphosis. A lot of interesting species spend a lot of their time in freshwater habitats when they are larvae. And so one of the ways that you do censuses of them is that you take larval censuses by like skimming the water we also did a thing where like we put a light and a sheet and all Mm -hmm. the bugs went to there and and we were like picking bugs off of this sheet (laughs) um so I have done some little things so I I guess I have some idea how those things work yeah that's cool and again that is something that I would love to talk about a little more at a future episode is the kind of the different ways we can do those counts and all of that because I think it's really interesting to think about so but again yeah so studies like that are are super important Right now, 
uh, or at least as close to right now as I could find, according to the IUCN, only about 8,355 insect species have been evaluated. Remember, we've identified about a million and only a little over 8,000 of them have been evaluated. <laughs> um, and about over 2,000 of those are evaluated right now as data deficient. So um, we got a lot to learn. We got a whole lot to learn. And, you know, folks who are studying these insects need our help and support to, to continue these studies. So I, you know, I do think that this is another thing that's inherently challenging with insects is that people just, we, we don't necessarily feel connected to insects. So Casey, we talked a little bit about our favorite and least favorite animals. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. Um, but before we get into that, do you, do you have a favorite insect? Is there an insect that you do enjoy maybe? Yeah. I mean, in general, like, I don't know if I want to say I enjoy all insects, <laughs> but fireflies are my favorite yeah. fireflies, lightning bugs. Uh, when I was five, I was in kindergarten and there was an invention contest and it wasn't very specific. You just had to invent something. And so I wanted to invent a firefly catcher. And, um, and so I had to do all this research at the library. My mom took me to the library and it was like way back in the day when you like Googled fireflies, it was like all ads for fire, like bug killers, basically, <laughs> but it's hard. But I remember, uh, I was disappointed because I was going to bait my firefly catcher, but adult fireflies do not have mouth parts and do not eat. So that is not a way to be able to do it. But the bug scientist from the study that we were, uh, part of, he was like, Oh, I bet you, you could like play a certain frequency of flashing light and attract into the census that way. So that was super cool. And then recently I found out there's actually like a bunch of different types of fireflies and the ones yes. I grew up with are not the same ones that are here, which is crazy to me, but I just started seeing my first ones a couple of days ago. Really? Do, do you remember the, the name of the ones that were okay? No, I don't. I do know that there's like a critically endangered species of firefly that's only found in Delaware. And I do want to drive yeah. there and see it. It that is threatened so by cool. housing development. Yeah. Um, so I want to go see it. Like, I, I read about that one too. And I cannot remember the name of that species off the top of my head, but yeah, that's true. I think the ones that we commonly see here are like called the the big dipper fireflies or something like that oh okay i think the firefly just became like the state insect of indiana yeah a couple of a few years ago now i yeah. think but that was actually in part done by like school kids who kind of nice. took up the initiative to say hey we need a state insect and um there is a i think it's the says firefly yes. which again is named after a person kind of Back there to what we, we were just talking about, but um, anyway, so yeah, fireflies are one of mine too, and I think there's just a nostalgia there. That I mean, they're just it's summer evenings playing outside, the seeing best. those fireflies running around, catching them for sure. And yeah, I think Casey, I sort of talked over you, but you you just started recently seeing them come out. Is that right? Yeah, I just yeah. saw a couple days ago and and was out last night. My dog's afraid of fireworks and they're going off yeah. a lot, so I'm out with her at night a lot just trying to get her to poop. Yeah. And uh and starting to see some fireflies, so that's yeah. exciting. Me too. Just literally maybe in the past 2 or 3 days I started seeing them out, so that's been really fun. I love them. And then also uh, another insect that I've come to love just in the past couple of years that I didn't know existed before were the, are the hummingbird moths. Oh yeah. Yeah. They're cool. Didn't know such a thing existed. If you're not familiar with hummingbird moths, please Google them. 
a gentleman that uh, that we work with who is into very into insects and things like that just pointed one out nonchalantly one day when we were talking outside and I was like what what is that and he's like oh you've never seen one of these and he like got a net and caught it and showed it to me and I was like it's the the most they're so cool like you see them and you think it's a hummingbird a little tiny hummingbird and it's a it's a moth fuzzy moth so cool so point being there are some really cool insects out there and I feel like the more that we can kind of get invested in them the more helpful it's going to be for conservation and for their work so I did again some some non-scientific social media studies done by Sarah prior to this podcast I actually asked so my Instagram friends for their favorite and least favorite animal just to see what the results would be. Didn't say anything about insects or anything like that. Just, I had a, only a small handful of, of answers, but it was interesting that not a single person named an insect as their favorite animal. Um, 50% of the answers for least favorite were insects. So 0% favorite animal, 50% least favorite animal were insects. And if you uh, bubble that up to arthropods as well, um, it was about 57% were arthropods because some people had like centipede millipede on there, but cockroaches <laughs> overwhelmingly were I, I the top like choice for least Butterflies, favorite. other than our friend Olivia, who's terrified of yes. them. Hey, Olivia. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of people like butterflies mm-hmm. and um, at my dad's store, we do a butterfly release of monarchs every year. And mm-hmm. um, in, in some cultures, monarch butterflies have kind of some meaning of like carrying memories or representing loved ones after death. And so we actually have people who will come and like honor loved ones at the butterfly release as part of that. And I think that's like a really interesting kind of unique to butterfly situation where you don't really necessarily have such a like emotional or spiritual connection to most animals. But I think a lot of people are more invested in kind of the bigger ones. (laughs) Yeah, that is, that's very true. That being said, I just put that out there to kind of, you know, think about uh, even if you say insect and you think, ah, I'm not a big fan, think about some of those insects that you might have uh, already a fondness or an appreciation for. I wanted to talk about a couple of others, um, insects that have been evaluated that are considered endangered species uh, on the IUCN. I, I just have a couple quick ones. Uh, maybe not as much fun as the bat pictures from the other week to look up, uh, but still hopefully something uh, kind of interesting for you to look up. One of them that I just sort of randomly came across because um, I have a, an awareness already of click beetles, um, but there is an insect called the violet click beetle, which is found at only three locations in England. There's only Whoa. three known sites. So, um, and they are, are protected. All of the sites are protected, thankfully. Um, but this is a beetle that requires like ancient decaying ash and beech trees to survive. So look up the violet click beetle. Are you familiar with click beetles, Casey? No, do, not really. do you know what they do? Okay, I found a, a video that maybe we'll be able to share on social media, but again, you can just look it up, not of the violet click beetle, but uh, there's lots of different types of click beetles. And the reason they're called click beetles is because when they get on their back, they can like flip themselves up basically, and it makes a clicking sound. Um, and I meant to, I don't really have good words to describe it, but basically they have like a peg 
that they can kind of stick under a lip on their like thorax, I think, that they can kind of catch and then release and it springs them up into the air. Whoa. And I found a really cool video that shows it in slow motion. And that gave me a whole new level of appreciation for them. So look up the click beetle, look up the violet click beetle. I think it's really pretty. It does have this kind of um, sort of sparkly violet hue that I really like. So that's a cool one. That's an endangered species. Um, and then there's also uh, here in North America, there is the American burying beetle as well. You familiar with this one, Casey? I mean, I know that there are zoos that have programs that mm -hmm. are doing reintroductions for this. Yeah, absolutely. And they are, I mean, they're, they're what they sound. They will bury dead animals, basically. The thing that's interesting about them is that they, they provide care for their babies, right? Which is the thing oh, that you cool. don't really think about with insects too much. They just so happen to provide that care by burying dead animals and then laying their eggs. And then the larvae can hatch and if here's a buffet for them in the form of this dead animal. Uh, but they will actually, the male and female will work together to like dig this little hole Ew. underneath the animal. I guess. And, right? <laughs> in a way it is, yeah, right? If totally. you stop and think about it. Um, so they are a critically endangered beetle as well. So, oh gosh. And I didn't, I didn't write it down kind of what their historical range was versus the range that they have right now. I'd have to look it up again, but drastically fewer states that they can be found in now than they used to be. Don't even know exactly why that is, although they hypothesize maybe it was tied into the loss of the passenger pigeon as a, oh, a cool for them. Yeah. So again, cool, have, but cool. right. Everything's connected, right? Again, that's, that's just a hypothesis. So just sharing those as a couple of insects to maybe get you interested a little bit. And if, if you're struggling to kind of connect with insects as a group or individual insects as a species, we do need to remember also that just in addition to, I think they're pretty cool animals, we can all probably recognize that insects are important, right? Even if you don't feel connected to them, they are important, they are necessary. So Casey, can you talk to us a little bit about what roles insects play in the ecosystem? Yeah, lots of different roles. Um, the first thing that popped to mind was back in our bird episode, we were talking about when you don't plant native trees, you have less of an insect population and that impacts the ability of birds to reproduce. So they are like, in a lot of ways, one of the bases of our food chains. Um, so they obviously feed on plants, but insect biomass is a really important to the survival of lots of other species, including birds and bats who we've covered on this podcast. We've talked about butterflies which are super important pollinators, something like one in three bites of food yep. you, you take is supported by a pollinator. We would like a lot of our food chain for humans would collapse itself if we didn't have animals. Chocolate. 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 I love chocolate so much. Pollinated um, by midge flies. Yeah. Honestly, like even in my own backyard garden, I didn't have enough insects and my zucchini did not properly pollinate. Um, so it is important. And then you mentioned the burying beetles. They are important for decomposition and making sure that the nutrients get back into the soil. So yep. that's, that's what I got. 
Yeah, absolutely. So, yep, important pollinators, extremely important pollinators. I mean, we think, you know, mostly of food like that. Um, they can be uh, helpful pollinators, even for things like cotton, although cotton's not in insect dependent for pollination, but they can still enhance pollination of stuff like that. Decomposers is huge. Both of those beetles that I mentioned, the violet click beetle and the uh, American burying beetle, are decomposers. So, they're returning, they're nature's recyclers, nature's cleanup crew. They're returning nutrients back into the environment. And then they're extremely important in the food web, both as prey for lots of other animals and, and predators as well. So you think of like ladybugs that help control aphids in people's gardens. They're a beneficial insect for that. Um, but insects in general do just help keep the populations of other insects under control. And they can even be important for people. So people will sometimes rely on insects as a source of food. Just curious, Casey, have you ever eaten an insect? I'm pretty sure I have. I'm pretty sure. So my mom took me to an insectarium in Philadelphia when I was a kid, because I was doing a project on butterflies. Shout out mom. That place was awesome. <laughs> um, so if you're in the Philly area, go check out the insectarium. And I'm pretty sure that they sold like chocolate covered ants and okay. like, uh, like cheddar crickets or something like that. So I think so, but also like cricket protein can be a really important source of food for people. And it's really eco-friendly compared yep. to loads of other things. Yeah. So that's something that I know has been, again, I'm not an expert in that, but has been talked about as a potential solution for world hunger in terms of using um, like cricket flour and things like that. So uh, I don't think that I have ever eaten an insect except maybe like swallowing a gnat accidentally or something like that. I did one time lick an ant though in Australia. Is there a special licking yeah, ant? <laughs> they have a, I think they're just called green ants. I can't remember, but their, their back end tastes like lime. So their abdomen Weird. tastes like lime. I thought that they were tricking me, honestly, when I was in Australia and was told to do this. I was like, this is, I'm going to be made a joke of right now, but it really does. It was All right. really interesting. I don't know why. I should look up why. There's got to be a reason, but it really tasted like lime. That's as close as I've gotten to eating an insect. So anyway, lots of important uses for, for insects. It's estimated that in the United States alone, they provide about $70 billion worth of service annually. So thanks, insects. Dang. We appreciate you. And because they're so diverse, there's not one threat that we can necessarily point to when it comes to insects. Um, Casey, you mentioned when we were talking about those studies, this was the other thing that I think I wanted to say and forgot about. Uh, you mentioned that, you know, we can't necessarily, when we were talking about like that 1.1% decline, you, you can't necessarily extrapolate that to everywhere, right? So there, it might be increases in some places, decreases in, in others. And, and that's very true uh, when we're talking about insects. You you know, maybe you can extrapolate something going on with one click beetle to other click beetles, but you can't even really extrapolate that to beetles as a whole, right? So there's so, so much diversity. Um, and that's true when we think about the threats as well. Something that might strongly impact one group of insects might not necessarily uh, impact another. But that being said, there are lots of multifactorial things that we know are going to be issues. So certainly habitat loss, we've talked before about how butterflies 
for example, are going to have very specific host plants. They're losing those host plants. They're not going to be able to survive. And this habitat loss can come from human expansion. This habitat loss or degradation can come from use of, of pesticides. That's especially um, widely used sort of indiscriminatory use of pesticides. And, and climate change, of course, are, are all contributing factors, all threats that insects are facing out there. So we always want to talk about what we can do to help. And this is from a, a Manga Bay article called Disaster Interrupted, How You Can Help Save Insects. And they spoke to um, authors of a recent paper that was called Solutions for Humanity on How to Conserve Insects. And some of the things that they pulled out that individuals in particular can do. They gave, I think, nine things were listed in this article. Um, first one's my favorite. Kill your lawn. Kill your lawn. <laughs> Mow do your it. lawn uh, less frequently or get rid of your lawn. Um, and of course, replace with other kind of native plants would be the thing. So planting native plants is the second one. Again, we've touched on that. Planting native plants is going to increase your number and diversity of insects and that's going to provide a really kind of strong base for your food web there leaving different types of habitat for them so leaving your stumps leaving your uh, old logs leaving leaving your leaves uh, as those can be home to lots of different types of insects and then anything that we can do to re reduce your carbon footprint as we've talked about on previous episodes as well is going to help all life on earth not just insects but one of my favorite ones, the, the last one that they mentioned is what the, I'll, I'll just read directly from the article. It says, tune in to the tiny creatures around you and always look on the small side of life. So that's really what I want to put out here for you today is um, just try to be a little more aware of the insect life around us, the importance of the insect life around us, and try to foster a little more appreciation for insect species as well. So again, I'm, you know, I mentioned my cockroach phobia. I actually love talking about cockroaches. I can't be in the same room with one, but they're fascinating as a group of animals uh, and extremely beneficial decomposers in the wild. So again, I think even recognizing if you have a hard time feeling connected to something, just spending a little more time to think about the benefits and see if you can foster some appreciation is important. So in our actions for the week, when we come back with those, I'm going to hopefully give you some suggestions for how to foster your relationship with the insect world. Thanks, Sarah. We will come back in just a couple moments with some actions. Welcome back, everyone. So I've got a few actions for you this week to hopefully help build your appreciation for the insect world. So my first action for you is going to be go bug watching. We've talked about bird watching here. Bird watching is something that we enjoy. I'm going to ask you to go bug watching. Take maybe five to 10 minutes of your outdoor time that hopefully you're still getting each week and just see what insects you can find. You do have to maybe 
be a little more still, maybe be a little more patient, maybe look at things a little more closely, spend some time like really looking at your plants. Maybe you're going to look at an old log or look underneath a rock or something like that. See what insects you can find. If you find something cool, if you find anything at all, uh, share a photo with us and let us know what you saw. Yeah. And I want to add into that. We, we talked a little bit about how it's hard to connect with insects. So I also want to go for like, not just quantity, let's go for some quality, like take some time to think about what that insect is doing. Like what is their motivations right now? Why are they doing what they're doing? Think about like how it must feel for them to like fly, you know, that's a sensation mm-hmm. that we can't do. I think we might think about birds flying a lot, but like what, what patterns you can see their wings making flies are going to fly differently than butterflies. Um, but yeah, are they trying to warm themselves up? Are they feeding? Are they just kind of, you know, traveling yeah. around, maybe looking for, for new sources of water? Um, and maybe you can use that to try and figure out how your, your yard in particular can make a better space. Yeah, I love that. And I, I remember, Casey, one of the things that I was thinking of as I was writing these actions was y- your story when we were talking about bird watching, uh, how our friend Olivia kind of took a moment to kind of point out what one of the little male, was it a male sparrow? I can't yeah. even remember anymore, uh, that he was kind of like showing off for the ladies or whatever it was. And I think I thought that was so great. And yeah, absolutely. You can think about that for your insects. I remember uh, when I first got my newer camera, I was trying to practice the sort of macro photography and I started taking pictures of this fly uh, on my deck, just regular pops fly. I don't know what it was, but I was taking photos and just watching this fly like clean itself, clean its face was so cool. So yeah, take a moment to kind of, to, to really think about the life of your, the insects that you're finding. If you're interested, by the way, in seeing some photos that are much, much better than I took of my fly, uh, there's, I, I just came across this uh, person that I'm following on Instagram now. If you follow, it's at explore with Dara. I hope I'm saying that right. Explore with D-A-R-A uh, is the name on Instagram. Amazing super close up, not all insect photos, but a lot of insect photos, some amazing insect pictures that might help you think about insects in a new light as well. So that's kind of a bonus action for you, I guess. And a second bonus action, especially if you are joining us listening from the UK, I've learned that apparently in the UK, at least uh, June 21st to 22nd, 21st to 27th is actually insect week. And so you can visit insectweek.co.uk and maybe learn a little bit more and see how you can get involved. Yeah, it's awesome. We do have a pollinators week coming up at the end of June here in the U.S. too, I think. Is it? Okay. I think we just had pollinator day. Yeah, a few weeks I think ago right. was at the, we like the end of May. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so check that out. Um, and then my sort of beast mode challenge for you this week is to participate in a community science project, if you can. So again, this is this is kind of the extent of the insect quote unquote research that that I've done. Um, but a cool app that you can use that we've probably mentioned before on the podcast is the iNaturalist app. So if you download that 
whatever insects you find in your in your initial challenge, you can actually post to iNaturalist. If you don't know what insect you're looking at, you can post it. The iNaturalist community can help identify. And then there are sometimes projects going on. So you can look at iNaturalist to see if there are projects going on near you where people can actually kind of use that data um, to help them with whatever project that, that they're working on. So you can see if there are any insect-related projects near you. Um, but if not, even still, just um, taking the time to share your photo on Instagram can, or on iNaturalist can help you get uh, an answer for what you're looking at. And you can see more of what's being posted and being noticed around your area too. Yeah, that's awesome, Sarah. I've never done any of their projects um, on iNaturalist, but that's a really good resource if you're like, I don't know what kind of bug that is. And I think that is actually one of the reasons that maybe we're not as into bugs is it's hard to tell. Like it's mm -hmm. easier with like, oh, it's a butterfly. I know what kind of butterfly it is, but then you're looking at everything else and you're like, mm, bug. Yep. So <laughs> it's a good way to check it out. Awesome. Well, I hope everybody enjoyed. And uh, th as always, thanks again for listening. If you have any questions, thoughts, feedback, anything, you can reach out to us at a little greener podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Also, feel free to post on our Facebook page, send us a message on Instagram, you know, like us, tag us, share what you're doing with us. We love to hear from you. Um, and again, we really appreciate you uh, on our first 500 downloads and here's to many more. Thanks for listening this week. Have a good week. Stay safe. We'll talk to you next week. Bye.